Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. My guest today is Brian Vordren. Brian is the Assistant Director of the Cyber Division of the FBI. Essentially, all of the FBI's cyber investigations on national security and criminal side fall into Brian's responsibility. And today we want to talk about a couple of topics with Brian, namely the intelligence collection program called 702, which has been discussed a lot in D.C. these days as its authorization expires at the end of the year. We're going to be talking about its importance and some of its controversy with Brian. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dimitri. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Great. So let's let's talk about 702. So first of all, for our listeners that don't know it and aren't tracking it closely, explain what this program is. It, it, it started out after 9-11, right, when we realized that our collection capabilities on foreign terrorists and other foreign threat actors were, were not as good as they should be. And we had the benefit of the fact that so much of the internet infrastructure was based in the United States with all of our telecommunications companies, cloud companies, et cetera, that a lot of the foreign threat actors were using. And people realized that there was an opportunity to use that for intelligence and as well as criminal purposes, right? Yep. Yeah, all of that is accurate. And I'll go in a little bit deeper here. You know, FISA Section 702, broadly referred to as 702, really does benefit the entire intelligence community. It's not an FBI-only equity. It's an equity for the entire intelligence community. And essentially what it does is it provides the intelligence community the ability to collect communications of foreign persons located outside of the United States. You know, it's important to know that it's only used against foreign targets of intelligence surveillance, again, who are located outside the United States. The one caveat I would throw in there, though, for your audience is if there is a foreign actor, whether nation state based or criminal based, that we know is outside the U.S., but that is using U.S. infrastructure, that person would still be uh, viable for collection. So just to give you know the audience an example, so this could be sort of a foreign intelligence officer, right? Let's say the Russian SVR officer that may be using U.S. infrastructure, maybe using you know, Gmail account or some other sort of infrastructure where their communications are flowing through the United States, or it could be a member of Al-Qaeda doing the same thing. And the thinking here is that they're foreigners, they're foreign threat actors, they do not have the protections of the U.S. Constitution, so you do not need a warrant, as you would for U.S. citizens, to tap their communication. And that is what this program basically allows you to do. Is that correct? That's very accurate, Dimitri, yes. If I can go a little bit further and just give you some numbers and some data, right? And I think it's important to understand the approval process as well. But in terms of value, 65% of all FBI raw technical reporting came from 702 so far in this fiscal year for us. So what you're saying is that FBI, with all of its resources, you know, legal wiretaps and, and using criminal investigations and the like and everything else, when you look at all of that together, 65% of all of your raw intelligence actually comes from this one program. It does. And, you know, just to broaden out what you shared, certainly um, Title III and FISA within the United States fall into that, but also does our human intelligence program, which is very, very robust. But to your point, 65% of all of our raw intelligence reporting did come from 702 in the first half of fiscal year 23. 97% um, of raw technical reporting on cyber activity came from 702 during the same period. So as we look at the cyber adversaries and the cyber vectors and the threats, they're obviously almost entirely based outside of the United States. So the human intelligence piece, the domestic collection via FISA or via Title III is obviously limited. That's why that number is so high. And 92% of all technical reporting on emerging and disruptive tech such as AI and ML also came from 702. It's a very, very important program. Um, as I think we're discussing here, right, the primary national security threats that we collectively face today now reside outside of our borders. So we must collect outward to protect inward. And 702 is, is the secret ingredient to that collection. If it's okay, Dimitri, I would like to walk through the approval process for 702 collection. Well, before, because I think, yep, yeah, before we do that, you were sharing with me before we got on some of the other statistics that this is just the FBI side of it. 
right? But I think when you look at even the overall intelligence that has been collected by the entire community, the NSA, CIA, and so forth, that even they are quite reliant on this, right? And if you look at the PDB, the presidential briefing document, quite a bit of that information comes from 702 as well. Isn't that right? That is accurate. Um, you know, 60% of all PDB articles include 702-derived intelligence, and that's an astronomically high number when you look at the breadth of the intelligence community in the United States and our partners and how we collect intelligence, whether that's through technical or human means, that's a very, very high number. So that is accurate. 60%. I mean, that is just staggering, right? When you think about how the U.S. Int intelligence community collects the FBI, CIA with their human assets, we've got satellites, we've got imagery, we've got NSA wiretapping things overseas and breaking into foreign networks, and yet 60% of the most important intelligence document that we produce that goes to the to the president every day is coming from this one program. It is, and I mean, I would even broaden out what you shared. Everything you shared is absolutely accurate, but the global partnerships we maintain that feed the overall intelligence cycle for the PDB is even more broad. And so, but that number is very high and very significant. And, and I guess that really speaks to the importance of the U.S. tech sector, right? Because the tech sector has become so dominant and so indispensable to the world that foreign threat actors have no choice but to rely in some ways on U.S. infrastructure, and that gives us an enormous advantage. That is absolutely correct, and that's an advantage that we would like to keep, and that's why our partnerships and open and transparent dialogue with all of those technology providers as we navigate legal concerns, national, national security concerns on our side, but also transparency and privacy concerns on the business side are so, so important and something that's paramount as we look at our relationships in those spaces. Okay, so it looks like it's really, really important. And if it does not get renewed, the nation could be in deep trouble. Perhaps on the counterterrorism side, we could be back in the pre-9-11 world where we are much more blind to, to foreign adversaries that are trying to kill Americans. Uh, we can imagine the impact on foreign intelligence services, the impact on cyber. But the program has received some controversy, and particularly lately with the FBI, there's been this report that came out. I understand it's been self-reported by the FBI, but once this information gets collected from U.S. tech companies under this program, it goes into government databases, and FBI and other agencies are allowed to query it. And the FBI said that on almost 300,000 occasions, right? There have been queries that should not have been done against that data. So talk a little bit about the reasons for that and, and how you're, you're thinking about mitigating that going forward. Sure, absolutely. Um, I have a lot of information to respond to that specific question. So what's broadly being referenced here is U.S. person or what we refer to as USPR query standards. Um, that should be broadly interpreted as U any U.S.-based entity, not just a person. So certainly organizations, email addresses, people in the United States, basically those who have constitutional protections. So when we talk about notifications of victims or warning targeted, en targeted entities, this is all based on a high threshold set for us for queries. And so one thing that's important to us on the cyber side is when we receive cyber threat intelligence that indicates that a U.S. person or U.S. organization may be targeted, we have a responsibility to engage with them. So, so let so me when, just jump in. So basically, again, an example for our listeners is you're using 702 to watch a foreign threat actor, let's say the Russian GRU intelligence service. And that, obviously you're watching their communications as they're traversing US infrastructure, and you're seeing that there is a victim in the United States, could be an individual, could be an organization that they're targeting. And what you wanna know as the FBI, because you do a lot of these victim notifications, and I've been doing them for many years, is go to that per person or entity and tell them, hey, you're being targeted by a foreign threat actor. You should really look into your networks to kick them out and shore it up. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely right. Yep. And so this USPR query standard is quite complicated. And so I'll walk through it. Um, and every USPR query uh, that we conduct has to meet these three pronged, this three pronged analysis, or it's considered a uh, 
essentially a non-compliant query of our own holdings. So let's walk through these. The first is to have an authorized purpose. So the person conducting the query must have the purpose of retrieving foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime from raw FISA collection. The second is it must be reasonably designed. The query term must be reasonably tailored to retrieve foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime without unnecessarily retrieving other information from raw FISA collection. And finally, it must be justified. So the person conducting the query must have specific factual basis to believe that the query is reasonably likely to retrieve foreign intelligence or evidence of a crime from FISA. So let's just walk through a basic example in the cyberspace. So let's say the FBI is investigating foreign threats potentially targeting a U.S. person. And for the case of this example, let's say it's a Chinese nation state adversary targeting a U.S. person or a U.S. organization via cyber. It doesn't really matter. We query that U.S. person, that U.S. organization's identifiers, whether that's a name, an email address, uh, an IP address against FISA data to find whatever foreign intelligence information regarding the threat we have in our holdings. So we have met the threshold for having an authorized purpose, which is the first prong. Next, we have specific facts about the threat and relevant foreign actors that make it reasonably likely the query will return results in raw FISA. So we've met the second prong of the analysis that the search is justified. However, we are looking for information about threats coming from a particular threat country, but we don't limit our query to run just against Chinese cyber case classifications and FISA holdings. Therefore, the search is not sufficiently, sufficiently reasonably designed. To be reasonably designed, we would have restricted our search to only Chinese cyber case classifications to make sure it's properly focused down. And Dimitri, if you're okay with it, maybe I can run through a few other historic examples where 702 has proven tremendously valuable, but let me pause there first. Yeah, well, actually, I, w I would be curious, you know, we hear about the, the value of it in aggregate, 60% of the presidential intelligence briefing and, and the like. But if you can share specific information about the cases where it has helped, I think our listeners would really appreciate that. Yep, absolutely. So here's just four examples I pulled in preparation for today's conversation. So FISA 702 played a very important role in the U.S. government's response to the cyber attack on Colonial Pipeline. Uh, obviously, using FISA 702. So, 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 again, for our listeners, you may not recall, this was a few years ago when Colonial, 2011, uh, 2021, sorry, when Colonial Pipeline, one of the nation's largest pipeline operators, was attacked by a Russian criminal group, ransomware group, and had to shut down the pipeline, which affected deliveries of fuel to the East Coast. It was a huge news story back a few years ago. Yep, absolutely correctly. I think it was uh, eight, the last weekend in April of 2021 or the first weekend in May of 2021, but right around that time period. And when that happened, our FBI Atlanta field office had a tremendous relationship with Colonial, and Colonial Pipeline was a very transparent partner during those initial hours and days of the incident they were facing. But based on intelligence that Colonial shared with us, we were able to then share information with the broader intelligence community and using 702 collection, we acquired information very quickly that verified the identity of the hacker, as well as direct intelligence that allowed us to recover the majority of the ransom paid by Colonial to the actor. So, so use 702 really to find the identity of the, the group and individual involved here. And then there was a U.S. government operation to actually seize the funds from the crypto wallet that was used to receive the ransom from Colonial and the government was able to retrieve the money from, from that criminal actor. So 702 contributed to all of that. Correct. Correct. Oh. I think the next example I have is even a little bit more personal, right? We hear a lot about transnational repression here in the United States, and those activities are obviously um, very, very concerning to so many of us who believe in the civil, civil liberties that each of us enjoy as part of this country, whether born here or whether they have status here. But here's a really good example. You know, the FBI used U.S. person queries against, against 702 holdings acquired information to identify the extent of a foreign government's transnational repression activities here in the United States. 
which actually included, if you can believe it, kidnapping and assassination plots that were being planned to happen here in the United States. So a foreign so government, presumably their intelligence services, were planning to kidnap or assassinate U.S. individuals, and you were able to discover that through 702. Yep, and that intelligence led to our understanding of what was going on and then directly contributed to our ability to disrupt those plots. Sometimes I feel, Dimitri, that when we talk about these examples, they're all Fortune 500 examples of major corporations who we've helped, and those are valuable, but I think this transnational repression example brings it to a very human and personal level that shows the span of impact that 702 does have. You know, Brian, one of the things that a lot of people may not appreciate is the degree to which the FBI and the intelligence community gets involved in cases of kidnappings, particularly overseas, of U.S. citizens, right? So when terrorist organizations or others are, are able to snatch Americans, the intelligence community really rallies and, and tries to identify where they are being held and, and help to, to rescue them, as has happened on, on a number of occasions. And I imagine that that's another way you could use 702 is you know, you, you're capturing all these foreign communications, you know that an individual, an American citizen has been kidnapped, and you, I, I'm sure you would go into that database to do a query to figure out if you have any intelligence on where they might be held. Is that right? That's all accurate. Yeah, that is a primary mission space for us, both domestically and globally, or as we obviously refer in the IC CONUS for Continental United States or OCONUS outside the Continental United States. But everything you said is exactly accurate. And just again, so, so that the listeners are uh, fully understanding this. So the program 702 is target foreigners. So you start with, I want to collect on this nation state that is a threat to us. I want to collect on this terrorist group. But obviously, they may be communicating with Americans or they may be discussing Americans in their communications. And that's what those U.S. persons queries are targeted at, right, is to try to understand either, you know, a threat to, to, to an American that these individuals may be discussing or targeting, or maybe it's a collaborator, right? It could be someone, you know, in the terrorism case, a U.S. citizen that is involved in ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and obviously you'd, you'd really want to know that, right? That's all accurate, yep. All right, so, so at this point, our listeners are probably thinking, this sounds incredibly valuable, for numerous reasons, but what's the catch, right? And the, and the catch is that there's there's been some compliance issues, and I'll just quote the Washington Post here. The FBI has misused this powerful digital surveillance tool more than 278,000 times, including against crime victims, January 6th riot suspects, people arrested at protests after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020, in one case, 19,000 donors to congressional candidate, according to a newly unsealed court document, which came from this FISA court that the FBI reported these 278,000 cases to. So that does not sound like you know tracking cyber hackers and terrorists and the like. So how does that happen? Yep. So I'm going to go through this in great detail because I think your listeners deserve to know. And so um, the 278,000 figure uh, there are certainly some useful things I can say, and I'll dig into these. So that number comes from the FISC, which is the FISA Court's April 2022 Annual Section 702 opinion that the FBI and DOJ directly contributed to. So I think it's important to note that that figure is accurate. Um, much of that figure and the underlying data behind it was provided by the Department of Justice and by the FBI. Um, that is our obvious obligation to the American public about transparency and honesty uh, when we don't do what we're supposed to do. So those were non-compliant queries against raw FISA, not necessarily just 702, and they span the time frame of April 1st of 2020 to March 31st of 2021. So, so basically a one-year period. Exactly, a one-year period, and the report was essentially uh, released one year after that period ended. 
over 99.7 of those errors would have been prevented by reforms that were put in place by the FBI in the last year and a half, and we'll talk about some more of those here. But they weren't in place at the time. So specifically, what would have stopped them is the pre-approval requirement for batch searches resulting in more than 100 queries at a time, since over 99.7% of the queries were large batch jobs. So DOJ. So batch their, jobs meaning you weren't just looking for you know one name of organization or person. You you, you put in a whole slew of them, right? And absolutely, ran the absolutely. And the, the easiest way for me to talk about it because many of the batch queries come from cyber queries are a broad range of IP addresses that we want to look at at the same time. So that's just a really good example of your listeners rather than running one IP address at a time. We would say, listen, these uh, 400 are relevant to the threats that we're seeing. We're going to run them all at the same time. So DOJ determined that all of the noncompliance, and this is in this report, uh, was noncompliance, but was also unintentional. That is, that users were acting in good faith. So this was not someone that was looking at their previous girlfriend or spying on their friends or the like. Yeah. And I had two things I would note there, right? I think Director Ray um, actually spoke to this in his recent testimony and House Judiciary received a very similar question. And I would want to reference his testimony specifically, and I don't have it in front of me, but I think what he said is years ago, there was an FBI employee terminated for doing intentional things in terms of queries of 702. But the post ante review and the audit of all this determined it's important to know because I don't want to make excuses. They were for an authorized purpose, but they didn't follow the query standard and therefore they were non-compliant, uh, but they weren't intentionally misusing the data for personal reasons. And, and I assume that, you know, if, if an FBI employee or an employee of, of another intelligence community agency is using it for the purpose that I described, looking at their, you know, f- former love interest or the like, that this is not just grounds for dismissal, but hopefully there are criminal penalties that would apply here. Yeah, I want to be careful with my response to that, Dimitri, because we have an entire, and so does the Department of Justice, and so does every other IC department and component agency, an entire professional responsibility referral process to include the Office of the Inspector General for every department in the U.S. government. And there's very well-established protocols and processes where if if I became aware of something like that, I would have a mandatory referral process to both our internal Office of Professional Responsibility and then it essentially works to the department IG. So it's very hard for me to say, would there or would there not be criminal charges brought but I think the the most important thing is that's a mandatory referral from whoever sees that activity uh, to the FBI's internal, well, it's their inspection division essentially, and then that gets referred to DOJ OIG. So, and then obviously the process runs from there. Got it. So, so is it fair to say that the majority of these non-compliant searches, the two hundred seventy-eight thousand, were not intentionally malicious? and that someone just went beyond the established procedure when they were running the queries. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I would go a little bit further. I think that's accurate. I would go a little bit further, and I would say as those queries were conducted, they did not meet the intent of the three-pronged analysis for the USPR query. They fell short in one area or the other or in the batch query component that we just discussed. So I think it's important for me to say as somebody who is um, responsible for a large portion of the organization, that while unintentional, they were still non-compliant, right? And um, those two things should be the same. They should be intentional and they should be compliant. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't want to ever take in kind of an easy button out of the problem. The FBI has not done that. We've been incredibly transparent Uh, with the FISC and with uh, oversight from Congress. And we will continue to do those things because we think that um, our errors need to be known, even if unintentional, to the American public. And that is going to make us stronger. And Congress conducting the right type of appropriate uh, oversight and reform will make us all stronger in the future. So again, very important for me to say, while unintentional, they were still noncompliant. 
So, so Brian, you, you mentioned that these queries were conducted from April 2020 through March 2021, and today they would not have been allowed because you've changed some of these procedures and you've tightened them up. But you know, I think our, our listeners would have a question of why did it take so long, right? This program has been around for well over a decade, back in the 2000s is when it was first created. So why only you know, in 2021, 2022 did the procedures get changed? Yeah, I actually don't have a great answer to that, Dimitri. I think that as we started conducting internal audits, um, which is something that was somewhat new to the organization in the late 2018-2019 era, this became an area of focus for us in terms of risk and compliance, right? And so when you look at the stand-up of the uh, Office of Internal Audit and the FBI and the new capacity to really review programmatic risk, uh, that's why this came to light at this time frame. And if you're okay with it, maybe I can walk through um, the compliance and the reforms that we put in place. Is that okay? Yeah, let's talk about how okay. can you ensure this doesn't happen again. So I think it's important to know, we hear this term warrantless searches used uh, quite routinely, and I want to address that first, and then I'll get into um, the exact compliance and reforms that we've uh, put in place. So, you know, many courts in the United States at the federal level have ruled that information and intelligence that are in our holdings um, and our ability to make connections with that data are not, not searches, they are queries, and therefore they do not require warrants that are obviously detailed under the Fourth Amendment of reasonable search and seizure. So in the case of cyber, we're almost always looking at NetFlow, packet capture, and other cyber indicators. But again, that Fourth Amendment becomes really, really important, as I said, because courts have found that querying our already collected information is not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And I think words matter. And when the American public hears warrantless searches, it puts a thought in their mind about what is or is not happening. And I just want to really take the opportunity to level set here that many, if not all, U.S. courts have already ruled on this and said it's not a search requirement under the Fourth Amendment. It's a query standard for us. And we've already talked about that extensively. So let me get into so this. So the analogy here would be that in the physical world, perhaps, you have at the FBI a huge database of fingerprints and DNA that you've collected from different investigations, right, dusting up uh, crime scenes and the like. And if you have a new case where you've collected a fingerprint off a murder weapon, let's say, you can go back into that database and search for it because it's already in government possession. And that is That's not correct. a search right under under US constitution that requires a warrant because you already have it. So here you have collected this data under these 702 authorities by targeting foreign communications and it's already in your possession. It's no longer at the tech companies, right? It's brought into the government and now you can run queries against it under law authorized to be under certain conditions. So you can't just go into that database and, and fish for anything you like, uh, but that is not constitutionally a Fourth Amendment search, right? That's what you're referring to. That's exactly correct. So as a result of our internal findings, right, we've implemented a series of measures in 2021 and 2022 to address the root causes of the noncompliance, and I'll touch on those here in a second, but I think it's important. We view this as obviously and appropriately a responsibility to do on a continuous basis until we're close to perfect. So the first uh, specific change is opt-in standards where a user has to specifically opt-in to the three-prong analysis in the U.S. Uh, person query standard, thus affirmatively uh, acknowledging the fact that they've met each of those three prongs. The second is a batch query approval, which we've touched on here. Now, uh, we could we run batches of up to a hundred, right? Which allows us to control the volume and really tie to the opt-in standards on each batch. And lastly, sensitive query approval. You had noted earlier in our conversation, and I can't remember the exact number. I apologize about congressional donors. Obviously, when there's sensitive queries of congressional donors, 
we have to meet certain additional thresholds and reviews to conduct those queries because of the sensitivity of who, whether that's a person or an organization they've been conducted against or they will be conducted against. So those are the the measures that have already been put in place. And as the as the FISC the FISC noted in its post reform report, which was published this April, um, they found that the FBI has moved to over a ninety eight percent compliance rate within the query standard. So that two hundred seventy eight thousand number has fallen way 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 down. I want to overemphasize this, you know, we've made improvements, but the number is 100% compliance, not 98 plus percent compliance. And there are still incidents in non-compliance and FBI leadership has determined further uh, remediations are necessary. So in June of this year, uh, the FBI director announced these further measures and they're really directed at accountability procedures and evaluating executives responsible for divisions at both headquarters and our field offices. So now I have uh, accountability, leadership accountability responsibility for division compliance within the FBI cyber program here at headquarters. And so we continue to evaluate on a recursive basis what else we can do to put the organization in the right place from a leadership accountability perspective, from an execution perspective, but also with a transparency to the American public risk perspective. So let me ask you this, though, because, you know, this Washington Post story refers to not really foreign threat actors, right? But January 6th riot suspects, people arrested at protests after George Floyd. And how does that happen? Because you know, if 702 is a program targeted foreign threat actors, nation states, terrorist groups, and the like, yes, obviously it ensnares communications that refer to or even include American citizens, but why would that program be used to look at sort of domestic criminal threats? And, and I think this is where Americans may be uneasy is I understand the way this program would help me, if you know, I'm kidnapped overseas and, and the FBI would look into this data to try to identify and, and save me, I understand how if a cyber threat actor from the Chinese Ministry of State Security is targeting my company, this data is very, very useful. But if I am engaged in something that you know, may violate the law just domestically without any foreign nexus, could this information be used to target me? and then prosecute me for that crime without requiring warrants to tap my communication. Sure. Um, if it's okay, Dimitri, maybe I take it out of that context and use just a basic bank robbery example, yeah. right? Where Because I think Perfect. we can all relate to that. So the answer is for a bank robbery subject, should we or could we query FISA and or 702 holdings under the USPR query standard? The answer is almost always no right now. There are some caveats, but let's just walk through this. In order to query a bank robbery subject against Pfizer 702 holdings, we'd have to have some reason, the specific factual basis that I referenced, to believe there's evidence about the bank robbery or foreign intelligence information related to it in raw Pfizer 702. We in our world never say these things are never possible, but in this example, the chances of that being possible are extremely low. So what factual basis could there be to believe he's, the bank robber is talking about the robbery with a FISA target is a relevant question. And again, even well, if Well, you, you can imagine, for example, if this is a bank robbery that you have evidence to believe is tied to Hezbollah doing fundraising mm -hmm. for terror organization in the Middle East, yep. that would have a foreign nexus. But this yep. is smash and grab of a local community bank that you don't have any prior information on a foreign threat actor tie, uh, nexus, that's off limits, right? You are it was exactly correct. And you basically stole the words out of my mouth. We would have to show that that person was acting on behalf of a foreign power uh, to do those queries against Pfizer 702. That's absolutely accurate. Got it. So, so basically, it's fair to say that this always requires for you to go into this database and search for a U.S. person, which includes both organizations and individuals. You, you need to show that foreign nexus to a, a criminal or, or um, terrorist or, or nation state threat overseas, right? 
That's absolutely correct. Yep. Got it. So clearly you, you can't comment on you know ongoing legislation. I, I understand that. But it sounds like the FBI appreciates that it has not been as compliant as it should be in the past. Uh, it is changing procedures, and it sounds like you're more welcoming to more compliance going forward with regards to this program to make sure it's not abused. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say, yes. And, and tell, tell us one more thing, because that might be a natural question that people listening to us might have right now, is why would it be a bad idea, even though you've collected all this data under 702, it's in your databases, why would it be a bad idea to ask for a search warrant before you can do that query? Why, why would that be a problem? Well, it becomes a resource and a time issue, and it's a different standard. So uh, let's take the standard portion of my answer first. You know, producing probable cause that a crime uh, is or has been committed is a much higher standard than a query standard that we just outlined. And because of that, uh, the conversation that we've already had, right, about information, intelligence, evidence in our holdings should be available to us as long as we follow the compliance uh, piece of it that's been the part of this conversation versus establishing a new threshold in the legal world, which is probable cause. That's reason one. Reason number two and three are really tied together, which is efficiency and speed. Um, you know, for us to, and let's take the example of the provision of decryption keys based on a a victimized organization sharing intelligence with us. The process to query 702 based on the intelligence that was shared and meeting the three prongs of the USPR query standard is fairly efficient and allows us to work on behalf of, in that case, the U.S.-based organization to provide them relief against a nation-state actor. Moving that into a criminal search warrant process leads to much, uh, much more work and inefficiencies and doesn't allow us to provide relief back to those organizations as quickly. So that's probably the best answer I can give you that question, Dimitri. Well, let's switch topics. It certainly sounds like 702 is incredibly valuable to the national security of this country. Hopefully it gets reauthorized by Congress before it expires at the end of the year. You know, maybe there needs to be more work on oversight to make sure that these past compliance violations do not reoccur, but it sounds like things are moving forward and, and the court has acknowledged that you guys are doing much, much better. But let me ask you about another threat um, to the nation, and that is something that the FBI and the Justice Department more broadly talks about a lot, which is infiltration of this country by foreign intelligence officers, recruitment of individuals by foreign intelligence officers, primarily China, that has been very, very aggressive in this area over the last decade. And, and you often, and I've been part of briefings that you've given to companies, your, your agents have on this issue, talk about how companies need to start focusing on insider threat in critical areas, be it defense contractors where uh, Chinese intelligence services may be recruiting individuals uh, to work for them and pass sensitive information, or even now the artificial intelligence companies, companies like uh, OpenAI that produces ChatGPT and others that have these incredibly valuable models with parameters in them that you could literally walk out of carrying on a USB stick, right, and send to China. And, and you, you have an entire policy, of course, that the U.S. government, the White House, uh, has announced to try to uh, slow down Chinese advances in artificial intelligence given its importance to national security, weapon systems design and the like. We're trying to limit export of advanced chips to China to make sure that they can't build those models. And this seems like a big vulnerability where the Chinese intelligence services can recruit someone inside these companies and just walk out with a model without having to train it themselves because of lack of chips. What can FBI do to, to better educate companies on this issue, to better help them uh, understand the problem and, and how to better deal with it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we put organizationally an enormous amount of attention on this topic, whether that is intelligence that the FBI has, whether that's intelligence that the intelligence community has to share with U.S.-based organizations, whether their sector is being targeted by uh, the human vector or whether they specifically as an organization 
uh, have been targeted uh, by a human vector. Uh, but there's an enormous amount of work that goes into this at the FBI headquarters level, but then also through our counterintelligence program in each one of our field offices. There's a great 30-minute YouTube video that was produced by the FBI uh, probably within the last 18 months called Made in Beijing that talks about exactly what you're addressing, which is the theft of intellectual property from U.S.-based organizations. And obviously, if we know about it, we will advise and notify the victimized organization or we will work it as a criminal uh, conduct matter and try to get a prosecution out of it. But again, um, and by the way, sometimes, sometimes there, you've had cases where you've highlighted this. Sometimes there's a joint human and cyber nexus to this, right, where uh, I think it was uh, one of the aerospace companies where they had recruit an individual to implant malware on the network um, to actually allow them to exfiltrate data, right? Yep, and we're seeing that more and more, right? It's a blended or a hybrid threat between traditional cyber vectors and now human vectors. Very, very challenging to discover, um, even for the most adept of us, but very challenging. So you know, when it comes to the insider threat uh, writ large, from an organization's perspective, we really encourage them to do their best to identify, to engage, and to protect. And by identify, we mean what are your most valuable assets that your competitors want to include China, then develop partnerships with security, local FBI field offices, and establish a dialogue to report threats, suspicious behavior, and vulnerabilities. And we'll talk about all these a little bit more. Then protect, right? Make your asset hard to steal, strengthen your cybersecurity, be aware of foreign travel, foreign ties, keep an eye on people who visit your facilities. Um, you know, we often say, be careful about the last person added to the delegation visit if uh, a foreign adversary is coming to visit you or a, or a hostile foreign nation is coming to visit with you. So if the Chinese are coming to visit a defense industrial base company and two days before they add two people, uh, that is a clue to look at those two people. But, but you know, Brian, and maybe this is where the, like the partnership comes in with local field offices. The government has much better resources than private companies to look at this, right? So if you are someone that is applying to work in the U.S. government or even receiving a clearance, you're going to get through very extensive background checks, maybe even polygraph. You're going to be looked at for all of your family relationships and everything else. Private companies can't do that. In many cases, legally are prevented from doing that. Uh, so how can the private sector and the, and the government, and particularly the FBI, work more in partnership together on solving this issue? That is, sure. It, and it's a great question and one that I receive uh, more often than not, which is, can the FBI help company A or company B vet foreign nationals that they're, they're going to employ? And the answer to that, as I would expect that all of us would expect, is that we can't vet. But let me walk you through how we look at the problem, because I think it'll help your listeners understand how, and perhaps even more importantly, when to engage with the FBI. Uh, but on that note, we really do encourage, like, build those relationships early so that when it's needed, you have it, and so you're not starting from ground one. So if a private company... Um, or it doesn't have to be a private company. It can be obviously an NGO, but an organization based in the United States, non-governmental organization, provides sufficient information to us regarding an individual to show a connection to an un to an authorized national security purpose. So let's like dissect that. Now, we have a person that is working for a corporation in the United States, and that corporation, through a little bit of due diligence, realizes their communication back to someone or an entity in China that is perhaps national security state sponsor affiliated. The FBI can move forward with certain authorized activities such as records checks, information searches, other government agency records or information searches, clarifying interviews, these types of things. And by the way, all of this is memorialized in open source as part of the FBI's domestic investigations and operations guide, so they can read it right in there. But that's how almost all of our meaningful counterintelligence and insider threat investigations begin, by an organization saying, hey, something doesn't look quite right here, and because of reason A, B, C, 
we are going to engage the FBI and we're going to have, start to have a more robust conversation. So that is a way forward when, when an organization identifies something that is a little bit concerning to them. But what we can't do, and again, I think and hope that the listeners would understand this is aligned with our constitutional um, priorities, is we can't just take a name and identifying information of everyone who works for a company and run them in our holdings to see if there's anything there, right? We have to have an authorized purpose. I guess the root of this is that companies, individuals, to the extent that they have these national security threats, should be reaching out to their local field office and building those relationships. And I know in particular larger offices, there is often events that the FBI puts on annual events and the like where they do briefings for, for organizations, but also is an opportunity to network and, and build those closer relationships, right? I know you kept mentioning Atlanta. I know the Atlanta field office very well. I used to live there back a number of years ago, and, and they do a lot of those types of activities. Yeah, all of that's accurate. But if I can um, speak a little bit about, you know, the, the second question I get is, okay, Brian, we understand that that's what we need to provide you. How do we build our organization so that we can uncover, identify these things to provide them to you? So let me just walk through that because I think it's really important. So um, number one, we do recommend that companies build a dedicated insider threat program and a comprehensive one. And I'll go through what that means here in just a second. But as part of that, they should probably have a review board um, not only to understand ethical requirements within the organization about what analytics they are and are not going to track, but almost a board to say, hey, we do or don't think we have a problem with what has been identified. And so that insider threat program has to be super robust. So we already talked about collaboration with trusted government partners, identifying the crown jewels. But then it's important to analyze the threats and vulnerabilities to personnel, both physical and information security. And there has to be trend analysis done against those variables that you're going to choose to measure on a recursive, continuous basis. The system alerts and triggers have to identify anomalous behavior. Again, physical and information security. Physical could be anything from financial uh, problems that are trying to beginning to show with somebody. The anomalous behavior could be, um, you know, system administrator access that someone doesn't have, or going to websites, or you know, using uh, covert email accounts or covert apps to communicate with unidentified people. And obviously, the risk proposition gets higher for those in the U.S. doing classified work. But even if I was a significant company, you had mentioned uh, one with a artificial intelligence model, right? it's worth a lot of money. And protecting that IP is not only important to that company, but it's important to our economic viability as a country moving forward. You know, perhaps not a term of art, but the minimum people standards that should be measured and evaluated. Here's just a short list. Someone who disregards rules and authority, uh, unreported foreign contacts or travel, sudden or uncharacteristic behavioral changes, inconsistencies in administrative records, deception, sudden unexplained change in financial status, problematic workplace attitudes, family stress, and a big one is remote access noncompliance, privileged user noncompliance. But again, having that executive level buy-in and visibility, the insider threat risk board that I talked about, critical assessment reviews, detection and reporting, data aggregation, analytics support, et cetera. These things all become important from a strategic to a tactical level to make sure that we're bubbling to the top those people that may be a risk to the organization. And then it allows effective engagement with the FBI about, hey, here's what we're seeing. Here's why this person we believe is a problem what can you FBI do to potentially help us corroborate vet this to put us in a safe position? This, this is a great list of risk factors to look for. You know, it strikes me when you look at publicly disclosed cases of foreign agents that have been caught either inside U.S. government or inside U.S. companies, most of them have not been these brilliant spies that, you know, went through all these covert ways to hide their affiliations. Many of them have had you know, gambling problems, lots of foreign travel, including to, to countries of, of concern like China. And if only you just look at it deeply enough, it doesn't require 
enormous resources to become quite suspicious very, very quickly, right? Yeah, that's true. And maybe I can just, you know, foot stomp two things here, right? We do view insider threats as a human human problem that requires a human solution, right? We've seen organizations um, over-index on a tool-heavy solution versus really trying to identify human behavior through human observation to feed into the insider threat program. And that's why that program at a strategic level is so important. And I already mentioned this, but I, I, I really want to reinforce it. That program has to have C-suite level buy-in and visibility, both buy-in and visibility, um, so that there's clarity and transparency about how it's being administered, how it's being run, and when there are problems identified, that visibility becomes important. Well, and I would expand that it should have buy-in at the employee level too, because at the end of the day, this is a problem not just for one part of your com- company, it's a problem for the entire company. And you really want to make sure that all employees are on the lookout for threats and the lookout for changes in behavior of their colleagues that could trigger suspicion, and that they also don't feel like you know they're being surveilled by the company in a well, certainly not unlawful way, but but also in a way that makes them uncomfortable, right? So, you know, you, sure. you need to b- build yep. that shared purpose and mission for everyone to say, look, guys, we are under a significant threat from a foreign nation state stealing our very sensitive intellectual property that could potentially have a even a national security impact to the country. And this is why we're doing X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah, I agree with all that, Dimitri. That just is aligned with being a good organization in terms of leadership and values to your employees. Yep. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. This was really, really fascinating and and valuable, I think, to learn about how the FBI uses this really important program. Full disclosure to our listeners, I've known you for quite some time. We work together on something called the Cyber Safety Review Board, CSRB, that is this joint public-private board that was created to sort of mimic a little bit the NTSB, the National Tra- uh, Transportation Safety Board, in cyberspace to, to investigate critical incidents. And I know you to be not just an incredibly smart and dedicated professional, but a true patriot and the country and the FBI is very lucky to have you. Thanks, Dimitri. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today to talk about such an important topic. And Um, Just really appreciate everything you do to try to improve our national security and transparency with the American public. And you've been a tremendous partner and look forward to the continued work with you. Thanks so much. Thank you.